Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. It's uh, my distinct privilege to be with you again in this capacity, and I, I'd like to first start off with a uh, Father's Day greeting to all the dads out there. And uh, I, I know that Father's Day, for any number of reasons, can be uh, difficult for some of us. Um, I get that personally. I know that. Um, and I want to be sensitive to that, but I want to encourage dads too. Um, you're of inestimable value. Um, our our cult, culture tends to uh, disrespect fatherhood, uh, and for years sitcoms have been making dads out to look like buffoons. And uh, the, the truth is, though, that you're needed. You're really important. Uh, you, if you're anything like me, you might tend to beat yourself up about the mistakes you've made, and I've made plenty. And uh, you may live with some regret about that, but whatever's going on, don't, don't let it discourage you and cause you to draw back, uh, to, to fall away. Uh, lean in. Your family needs you. Your kids need you, even if sometimes they won't admit that. Okay, so be encouraged, dads. Uh, it's, it's a really important role that you have. Uh, I'd also like to, secondly, uh, wish you a happy Emancipation Day, uh, or maybe more popularly known as Juneteenth. Um, it, it's appropriate that we remember and celebrate this day. Uh, June 19, 1865, uh, marks a milestone in our nation's long journey toward its ideals of liberty and justice for all. And we of all people, we Christians, are freedom-loving people. Uh, our spiritual ancestors were in the thick of the abolition movement, and we have received from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the ultimate freedom, right? He has freed us from sin, death, and the devil. And so we should celebrate the advancement of true freedom uh, everywhere, right? So None of that has anything to do whatsoever with the qualifications of deacons, but I thought it was important to mark out some of the special aspects of this special day. And no extra charge for that, by the way. Um, uh, but as is my habit, please let's pray together before we launch into uh, our study of God's Word. Our great God, we praise your name. You are the Almighty. You are truly awesome, and we are not. Uh, we, are, we come humbly before you today, and uh, Lord, we pray that you will be with us in a powerful way. Uh, Lord, I am very mindful of the uh, stricter judgment uh, that those of us who teach will endure, and so I just pray, God forbid that I distort your message in any way. Uh, may it convey clearly through me to your people, prepare their hearts. Um, uh, Lord, it's your word and let us treat it carefully and diligently, uh, studying it to understand you and us and our relationship to you and to each other and all these things. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will guide us in our understanding and help us to leave here today a little closer to Jesus, a little more like him than when we came in. And uh, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the, where we want to start off, it's, it's important for us to study the qualifications of, of deacons for at least two reasons. Some of you out there might actually aspire to the office, which is a good thing. It's a good thing to want to be a, a deacon. Um, but also, even for the rest of us, the entire church, we have a responsibility in 
the commissioning of deacons, remember, we must vet them, right? There's a, there's a couple-week period when they're presented as, as postulants, as candidates for the office, where we must consider them in the light of the biblical qualifications. So it's important for, you, for all of us to understand the um, qualifications for deacons. And we're going to start off here in Acts chapter 6, uh, we've, we've, uh, last couple of weeks, uh, Dennis and Arthur shared with you a couple of, of examples, Stephen and Philip, the, of the first deacons that were appointed in the church in Acts chapter 6. We want to focus today specifically on verse 3 because that's where the initial qualifications were laid out for the people who would be deacons. Uh, and it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so, as we look at those uh, criteria, the first one is good repute. Uh, the word there that's translated good repute is the Greek martureo. This is to be a witness. Uh, this is the idea of giving a good testimony. Um, it's the word from which we get the English word martyr. And so, uh, we usually associate that with those who have died in uh, their witness, and, and such as it was, right? Because especially in the early church, but even today, many who provide that consistent witness of their faith in Christ wind up uh, sacrificing their lives in, in the cause, right? So, but the point is that the, the deacon candidate should have a consistent good testimony of their faith in Christ, all right? And the, uh, the next concept, the next qualification, the next criteria, is that they be full of the Spirit. Uh, this is pretty much, as you might suspect, one who is walking in the Spirit. Uh, we're all told uh, to, to be full of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. Remember, it says, don't be drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but rather be full of the Holy Spirit, right? And then, <clears throat> finally, the uh, deacon candidate should also be full of wisdom. Um, that's Pretty much as it, it says, it's right there, full of wisdom. Uh, by the way, um, the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. So if you know somebody named Sophia, that's what their name means, is wisdom. Okay? It's also where we get the uh, English words like sophisticated. Um, so full of wisdom, that's, that's the other criteria. Okay, that's Acts chapter 6. Now we get to what is the primary um, passage that addresses the qualifications for deacons. That's in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 12. This is where Paul expounds on this a little bit further. And in fact, this is the primary passage that talks about qualifications for the office of deacon. So we're going to pull this apart uh, verse by verse and some of these verses word by word even. So here we go, starting in uh, verse 8. It says, deacons, must be, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So let's look at this uh, first, deacons likewise. Well, likewise in compared to what? Well, the context of this is that uh, immediately preceding verses, verses 1 to 7 in chapter 3, discuss the qualifications for elders. So what Paul's saying is that for the deacons, similarly, similar to the elder qualifications, here are the ones for deacons, by the way, they're very similar. They're all character-based types of thing. All right, that's what we're going to see as we walk 
through it, and there's a lot of overlap, in fact. Uh, not necessarily uh, exactly word for word, but uh, certainly concept by concept. In principle, there's a lot of overlap between the, the criteria. Okay. So the first one out of the box, first one uh, in the lineup, is that the uh, deacon should be dignified. Uh, this is the idea of being honorable. Uh, King James has it as grave. Um, I like the term venerable. That's a, that's a good term. This is the idea of being dignified. Okay. Uh, next, uh, they should not be double-tongued. Okay, double-tongued is uh, the Greek word uh, dilogos. Now, you might recognize the, the, uh, the part of that word logos, which is the Greek word for word, right? And, and di or di is the prefix that means to. Okay, we, have, we use it a lot in English as well. Uh, so, uh, dilogos, then, is one who is, is to equivocate, to say two different things, uh, to speak with a forked tongue. You've heard that expression, perhaps. The deacon needs to not be that way. All right. Uh, the next thing is that they should not be addicted to much wine. Uh, this is the same uh, criteria that is uh, required of elders. This is one of those ones that's directly in common, and it's it's very clear. Uh, you should not. The deacon must not be an alcoholic, or in fact, uh, any any substance addicted to any kind of substance that. Uh, would control their lives. We're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by substances, right? No substance abuse. And then uh, next, not greedy for dishonest gain. A couple of other renderings, not fond of sordid gain. I, I like the King James, not greedy of filthy lucre. <laughs> I, I like that way of putting it, right? Uh, I think you get the idea, right? We, you don't, we don't want any kind of shysters, uh, people that are... Uh, anyway, you get the idea. All right. Uh, and then in verse 9, uh, Paul says, They must hold the, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Um, uh, Paul uses this idea of the mystery of faith throughout his writings. It, he, it pops up all over the place. And uh, it, it is a mystery, Right, to the natural mind, this mystery of ours, it, this uh, faith of ours, is mysterious. It's, it's not, uh, he says elsewhere, uh, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are saved, it's the power of God. Right? And, and so, so this is uh, something that in certain circles you may be uh, mocked or uh, or perhaps uh, disrespected, because to the natural mind, your faith is foolishness. And yet, it does make sense. Uh, a few years ago, I, I talked to you about the rational basis for our faith. So don't be discouraged, but hold firmly to the mystery of our faith. Um, specifically for those holding the office of deacon, it's imperative that, that they not waver with a clear conscience. That's no doubting, right? The, the idea is that I am fully in. I'm all in with this. And uh, the idea of clear, um, uh, that's, you've heard the term cathartic, uh, which is like a cleansing. Th that comes directly almost uh, uh, directly from the, from the Greek, and it has the idea of, of a cleaning, of pure. Uh, in fact, I think King James 
does translate it as a pure conscience. Okay. So no doubting, no equivocating here. I hold to the mystery of this faith uh, with, with firm conviction. Okay, and then in verse 10, it says, And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So the idea of testing is, as you might imagine, it's an examination. It's a proving process. And the idea is that we as the church, we have enough experience with these people to recognize their character, to see them working in the ministry faithfully. Uh, so that we can see that they are, in fact, blameless. And the idea of blameless is, in the New American Standard, it says beyond reproach. And this word has the idea that nobody can bring a, a true accusation against the person. There may be false accusations, but nothing is, is, will stand, right? They are uh, above reproach in that respect. And, and that's a similar idea in uh, the for those for uh, elder, right? And again, the elder is supposed to be above reproach and likewise here for the deacon. Okay, now we get to uh, what is one of the more interesting and maybe controversial verses in the passage and maybe even in the Bible. And that's why I've given you uh, several renderings of this verse. The first one is the uh, normal ESV that we often use around here, but then also the King James, American Standard, New American Standard. Um, I just read it in a couple of those. The ESV says, uh, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Okay, but jump down to the bottom of the New American Standard. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So this verse is very critical to our understanding of the question of female deacons. All right, and we're going to pull this apart and, study, and camp on this for a little while. Uh, the debate, we'll just acknowledge up front, there is a debate about this in theological circles to this day. What does this, for, in fact, even how to translate it, as you saw previously, right? The translations are significantly different in some important ways, specifically in whether we're talking about wives, uh, that would be the wives of the aforementioned deacons, or women in a more generic sense, and in this context, meaning female deacons. So we're, we're going to look at that, and the word that is used here, the root word that's translated wives or uh, women, is gune. And this is the, this is the generic term for, uh, for woman. It appears a couple hundred times in the New Testament. <clears throat> it's uh, often rendered Woman, uh, women, wife, wives, it's about equally split between the two. Uh, you might notice uh, uh, the, the structure of the word. It's, it's the word from which we get uh, our terms like gynecology, things pertaining to women, and it's the generic term for woman. Um, how to understand when you translate it wife or woman is usually driven by the context. Okay, so when it's clear in the context that we're talking about the woman who is married to a particular man, that's when we would use the translation wife. Um, if, if it's not with that, then we would just use the generic uh, word woman. And, and, but the, the problem is that, see, the Greek doesn't have a peculiar word for wife. It's the same Greek word in the context 
is used to, tran uh, to translate. So in, in, in the Greek structure, so like my wife Diane back there somewhere, um, it, it would say, Diane is Jack's woman. And that sounds a little weird to us in, in the English, but that's what it would be, right? We just say Diane is Jack's wife because we have the word for it. And that's what that means. All right. Okay. Uh, let's pull the verse apart a little bit more. Um, when you look at the original language, uh, if there, the word there is inserted in the translations when the translator used the term wives because they wanted to make it sound appropriate in English. But if you go back and look, there is not there. There's no there there. Okay. And the interesting thing is, if Paul had really intended to um, say that these were the wives of the previously mentioned deacons, there is a Greek possessive pronoun that he could have used and removed all doubt about this, but he didn't. Uh, so it's sort of an argument from silence, which isn't particularly strong, but in this case, I think it's at least uh, worth noting. Another um, interesting argument from silence in this case is this. It's interesting in this passage. Remember, the chapter 3 starts out with the qualifications for elders, then he rolls into the qualifications for deacons. And it's interesting that if, if what he was doing is in verse 11, inserting specific instructions regarding the wives of deacons, it's kind of curious to me that he didn't give any instructions regarding the wives of elders in the previous passage, in the previous section. So it seems a little bit strange if that's what's really going on here. But again, argument from silence, I think it's, it's interesting, though. Let's look at uh, the example of Phoebe. We'll take a little diversion to Romans 16 now, which says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Cancreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So first of all, is, uh, the, key, the key word in this uh, passage is servant, of course. And that is the word diakonos. Servant is overwhelmingly the way that word is translated in the New Testament. And it's appropriate. It's by definition. That is what it means. Um, now, when it refers to the specific office, it will... Uh, be uh, translated deacon um, when, we, when it's clear that that's the understanding of that word. Um, but in this particular case, it's not so clear, so it's usually rendered just servant. But interestingly, uh, there's a lot of people that think that, that she was the, an office holder uh, of the office of deacon, and more than just a gen generic servant, uh, one of whom is the uh, old commentator uh, Matthew Henry, who was uh, with us in the early 1700s, and uh, this was pulled out of his commentary on this, uh, on this, uh, on this verse. He, it says, As a servant to the church of King Creai, diakonon, a servant by office. So Matthew Henry is one who thought that in this case, Phoebe was a, a, an official of the church of King Creai and held the office of, of deacon. And there's others today uh, that agree with that interpretation. In fact, the reference to a particular church kind of supports that. It reinforces the idea that she was a deacon at the church of Cancreae 
And, and that's uh, the reference here. All right. Now, it's important also to understand that for some of us, there's a lot of confusion that's injected into this whole discussion by the misuse or the improper use of the term deacon in some traditions. It's used for uh, church officials who really are operating a lot more like elders. All right, And that, that actually was my experience. Uh, I, I was from a Baptist church up in Pennsylvania, an independent Baptist church, and that was exactly what was going on. We had our deacon board, but I can tell you we were operating as elders. Uh, and, and finally, actually, at, at, some, at some point several years ago, uh, we did um, uh, actually restructure our polity, and we went to a biblical eldership model, much like we've done here, and we rearranged all that stuff. But there's a lot of Baptist churches who still use uh, uh, this, this uh, term deacon in that way. And there may be others out there. I'm just uh, uh, explaining from my experience. So that doesn't help the discussion, I think, really, because it, it, it confuses what is a deacon, really, and what is the role of a deacon. Because remember, biblically speaking, um, the primary teaching and oversight responsibilities are given to the elders. All right? The deacons are uh, supporting the elders in the execution of the ministry. Uh, they're... The deacons are in the trenches making it all work, working with the rest of you all to do the work of the ministry and help making it all run smoothly. But the responsibility, the oversight, the leadership uh, roles are reserved for the elders. And therefore, inserting uh, females into the diaconate does not violate the restrictions on roles uh, in 1 Timothy 2.12. We've talked about that passage before. I'm not going to rehash that uh, today, I'll leave that as a uh, as homework assignment for the student, if you will, if you want to go back and refresh your memory on that. But the key is to understand that there's not a problem, really, with having female deacons if you understand that uh, the, the oversight authority or responsibility is vested in the elders, not the deacons. Okay, so back to... Uh, 1 Timothy 3.11, looking at some of these specific requirements that are addressed to uh, the female deacons. We would say, given the preponderance of evidence, even though there's controversy, we've taken the, the position that, that female qualified women are welcome in the diaconate. In fact, we are glad to avail ourselves of the gifting that God has given them so that the body of Christ might be healthier uh, because of that. So, so, so let's look at some of these specific um, criteria that we have for the female deacons, as Paul has written it. Uh, women must, in the NAS, since it uses the preferred translation of women in the beginning, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Okay, so dignified. Dignified, this is the same word that uh, we had in verse 8 up front, uh, speaking more generically to, to deacons in general. All right, and furthermore, now looking at malicious gossips, the uh, ESV has it has has it translated not slanderers, so malicious gossip, slander, kind of thrown in the same category as a translation of this Greek word diabolos. That's the word from which we get our English word diabolical, and it carries this idea of evilness, right? Evil, satanic, and in fact. The uh, typical translation is devil when this word appears in the New Testament. So the idea is when we're 
uh, engaging in malicious, malicious gossip, when we are slandering people, far from being godly, we are being devil-like. So that's a pretty serious thing. All right. Um, okay, next word, temperate. Uh, ESV has sober-minded. I kind of like that term uh, because... The, this idea, we sometimes think of temperance as merely withstay, uh, uh, withholding ourselves or, or being at least very careful with our use of alcohol and stuff like that. But there's more to it than that. There's a circumspection, a vigilance that sober-mindedness uh, carries, I think. Uh, so so the, the female deacon here is one who is constantly reassessing her own character, her own behavior, what she's doing. In fact, uh, I recommend this for all of us. We all need to be walking circumspectly. We all need to be constantly reassessing what are we doing, why are we doing it, because we're given to blind spots. We're still error-prone. We are still sinners after all. We have the Spirit. We are forgiven, but we are not yet fully sanctified, right? So we need to be walking circum- circumspectly and, and especially required for the, a woman who would be a deacon. Um, and, and being just vigilant, uh, a high situational awareness always doesn't mean she can't have fun. We can have a good time, that's fine, but always uh, still with a high degree of situational awareness, what's going on around us and what is really trying to happen in all of this in the grand scheme of things? Because remember, the spiritual war rages, right? Let's not forget that. Okay, um, also, she should be faithful in all things. Um, the, the Greek word pistos, um, very close to the word for simply faith, pistis, um, but pistos uh, is this idea of, it's usually translated faithful, and you kind of get the idea, right? It, it, it carries a connotation of trustworthy, and it's sometimes actually translated that way, trustworthy. Um, so this is one with whom you can feel confident in trusting to them uh, things, right? So when, when they jump in and they're working with a bunch of people to, to do ministry, we can have confidence that they will be diligent about that, all right? That's what we're talking about here. Okay, uh, then we come back to a more generic treatment of deacons in, in the larger sense. In verse 12, it says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So the one wife thing, this is the same uh, criteria that we had for elders, the one woman man thing uh, that we discussed previously. Uh, this is the same thing here. And uh, remember that it doesn't mean, since it's addressed to the men, that they should be one, a one-woman man, doesn't mean that our female deacons can have all the husbands that they want, okay? That's, that's, not, what, it's, that's not what that should be interpreted to understand. Um, because remember, uh, George Kinyanju, I think several weeks ago, told you that culturally, that wasn't even a consideration, right? It just it didn't happen. Um, you had in instances culturally where a man would have more than one wife. It was almost never the other way around. So it, it wasn't necessary for Paul to address the women in this case. But certainly the 
the ideal that we've seen from the beginning, go back to Genesis, has always been a marriage is one man, one woman, united together in one flesh, um, a combination that God has, has blessed and ordained. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then we come to the idea of managing their children in their own households. Well, uh, sorry, I have a typo on, on this. It says, it says managing ruling, and that ruling has the ESV next to it. Um, that's not Chriselle's fault. She did a great job in preparing these slides. That was my fault. I injected that. The, the ruling is the translation in King James. Managing is the ESV. Okay. But the idea is, is pretty much as it suggests, right, that, that, that the deacon should be a good manager of their own households, of their children especially, right? And, and really, this is the same word that's used here in terms of managing or ruling. It's the same term that's used of elders in relation to the church in 1 Timothy 5.17. Uh, again, we're not going to take the trip there, but uh, just homework for the student. Uh, just wanted to make sure that you were aware that there was that connection. All right. Um, and then uh, just a, a handful of concluding remarks, really. Um, 1 Timothy 3.13, the next verse after all the qualifications, uh, reads, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So it's a good thing to aspire to the office of deacon. That's what I told you in the beginning. Uh, it carries additional responsibility, but it's an important thing to do. And in fact, comes with its own set of rewards for you. So I would encourage you uh, to consider that for, your, for yourself. Um, but there's another thing that I want you all to be thinking about. Whether you aspire to the office or not, whether you are a deacon or not, the truth of the matter is, is that we're all called at some level to be deacons in this sense, in this sense. We're to serve the Lord. We're to serve his church. We're to serve at some level all the people, which is all people, that bear his image. Remember, I told you that the term we use that we get deacon is diakonos. It literally means servant. And, and we, should all, we are all called to be servants in the general sense. Okay. Uh, and then also I want to remind you that in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said this about himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the verb form of the same word, diakoneo. So Jesus, the Lord of all, the Savior, referred to himself in the same way, the very same way as a servant. Uh, that's consistent with the, the humility, the, the kenosis passage in Philippians 2 that we've discussed at least a few times from this platform amongst you, where Jesus emptied himself, emptied himself of, of the glory and, the, and some of the prerogatives of being God, when he appeared in human flesh. Uh, that's a great mystery. Um, I continue to be amazed at the humility 
of our, of our leader. And, and we're reminded that every leadership role uh, should be handled in a spirit of humility. And um, I can't tell you the, 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 the humility, the humble um, mindset that I approached this assignment as I come before you because I am just a faulty human being as well. God is the Almighty One. He's the perfect one. And even though as a human being, uh, this union of God with human flesh that is hard to understand when the God of the entire universe was localized uh, in the form of a human being for a time like that, um, he viewed himself as a servant. Uh, powerful, powerful stuff, I think. And uh, I, I, I wish that you would really ponder that and take that to heart when you consider who you are and what your role is in life, in this world, in its entirety. Um, the, the idea of servanthood. Um, it's a powerful, it's when, you, when, when that really hits home with you, it's a powerful thing. It's a, it's a powerful moral um, concept, okay? Um, with that, we've, we've gone through the entire list of the qualifications for deacons. I appreciate all those who have, have recently come forward with, as, uh, as new deacons and those who have been with us as deacons now for the last few years. Uh, I can't tell you how encouraging that has been to me personally to see people stepping up, getting in the game, and doing the work of the ministry uh, it's a fantastic thing that God is doing in our midst. It's very encouraging, I think. And uh, with that, let me pray for us, and we'll conclude. Our great Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we're amazed. We're amazed at what you have done. We're amazed at that you would put yourself out on our behalf. Uh, Lord, you didn't have to do any of this. You didn't have to come be a servant. You are the Almighty. And yet you did. You left your throne on high. And you came and endured even the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before you. Why you find so much joy in, in us, little uh, dust specks on a slightly larger dust speck in the great expanse of the creation that you've made, um, and yet, you care. You care deeply. You care perfectly, and, and you love perfectly far deeper than we can ever love. And uh, we just thank you for all those things. Thank you for coming, Lord Jesus, to make a way for us. Uh, Lord, I, I ask your blessing on us as we part, depart from here today. Go with your people and bless them, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.